the doctor will be required to falsify the death certificate, to lie about why they died. Uh, they're not allowed to say that they died by assisted suicide, died by, by euthanasia. They have to pretend and write on the death certificate that they died of their whatever the sickness was that they had, their underlying condition. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical and joyful. One of the things that life has thrown at us lately is the latest effort by people in Parliament to push through a euthanasia bill. This has been a recurring thing, and joining me today is the Most Reverend Anthony Fisher, the Catholic Archbishop of Sydney. Thank you very much for joining me. Great to be with you, Peter, and the listeners. We spoke about this issue on several other forums, but this is something that just won't go away, it seems. There are enthusiasts for for euthanasia. I think some of them are very well-meaning. It's because they've had a bad experience in their family, perhaps, of a death, and they, they become a bit of a crusader for this cause. There are other people that are a kind of... Uh, death libertarians. They just think everybody should have the right to choose how to die, when to die. Uh, so th there's a lot of different motives, but you're quite right. There are some people that just will not let go of this bone. They're going to keep presenting a bill year after year after year until we give in. One, one thing I noticed, uh, I must confess, I wrote to any politician who stood to gain from my vote uh, on this issue, to my local MP in the, in the lower house and um, to every I don't know what we call them, senators or something in the upper house of New South Wales. And the fellow, one of the fellows who put forward the last bill wrote back to me and said, you know, if you knew your stuff, you knew I put the bill forward. And I, I suggested that, well, everyone needs to know how people are feeling about their bills. And, and he suggested that anybody who was against the bill was lacking in compassion, that they didn't, they hadn't had this experience. Uh, he was a little bit surprised when I came back and said I had watched my own father die uh, from a, lo a long convalescence with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's and um, had some experience with this kind of uh, not not pleasant end, if you like. I wonder, is that is that a, a part of the debate in your experience, this kind of emotive, you don't care if you don't want to kill people? Yes, I think it's very often run in terms of mercy or compassion. Uh, that if we really cared about people, we wouldn't want them to suffer. Sometimes types of suffering can't be helped even by the best of medicine, they say. Therefore, we should be supporting this uh, as an option uh, or even as the best way to go for people who are really suffering. I'd have to say I, I really I really do understand uh, the what people are, are, are saying there and feeling there. Uh, I've been very sick and close to death myself uh, at one time in my life and in a great deal of pain. And I think I understand something of what's motivating people when they argue for this. Uh, but I don't think real compassion, real mercy is the same as, as, as giving people whatever they say they want uh, or, or dealing with suffering by getting rid of the suffering person. I think sometimes real compassion, the hard love, is when we stand by the cross of the dying person uh, 
like Simon of Cyrene who who tried to bear some of the weight of Jesus' cross or Mother Mary who stood by her son's cross. We, we talk to the person, we pray for them, we weep for them, we offer them vinegar on a stick, which is a kind of anaesthetic. We, we do our best to help, to keep them comfortable and give them love and meaning. But, but what is unthinkable to us would be to deal with suffering by killing the suffering person. Is there anything new or different about this particular presentation, do you think? Like, have we seen the bill that's coming forward? Yes, we've, we, we have seen, uh, at least in broad outline, the, the present bill. It will be amended. So Mr Greenwich has told us on the basis of what he hears back from community groups and submissions and other politicians in particular. But in broad outline, it's very similar to the bills that we've had in several other states. It, it's, to begin with at least, it's euthanasia for the terminally ill, those who are expected to die in the next so many months. Uh, but of course, we know from everywhere in the world where that has been brought in, before too long, it's extended. So it's not just for the terminally ill, it then becomes for the chronically ill, for those who aren't physically ill but are mentally ill, uh, for those who don't have an illness at all but are just sick of life, uh, for, for all sorts of reasons. But you begin with it's only for the terminally ill. Likewise, the Greenwich Bill says it will have to be entirely voluntary. So it's only people who have legal capacity over 18, mm -hmm. not suffering a psychological illness, genuinely free. But again, we know everywhere this has been tried, before too long, people start arguing that it should be extended to the unconscious, to those underage, to babies and the like, to anyone that's suffering. So we begin where we are at the moment with a, a bill for the terminally ill who are choosing this, but we, we can't presume that that's where it's going to end. Can we address that issue of free will for a second? We know, psychologists will tell us what effect serious pain has on a person's um, capacity. We know that one of the causes of depression is to suffer serious and long-term sustained pain. And psychological suffering from various mental conditions can also do this to us. That Whenever we're suffering in the long term, our capacity to make good judgments about our life is reduced. Uh, it's at least diminished. Um, how can we talk about a genuine free will decision, even if we've got no pressure from anyone around us, if we're in this state of you know, oppression, really? Well, I, I think we all know the experience of depression, either ourselves or in someone we love, and we know how it affects their judgment. And we would always say to ourselves or to those we love, look, don't make any major decision about your life until you're out of this uh, position you're in, because it, it's going to be affecting your judgment. Now, that's that doesn't mean that people who are depressed uh, or, or who have other kinds of mental illness, anxiety, or, or other disorders can't make some decisions for themselves. Of course they can. But, but the wise thing to do in these situations is deal with the depression or the anxiety first and then make your decisions. And unfortunately at the moment, unless you've got something, a very serious and obvious mental illness, 
uh, it's quite clear in these euthanasia regimes, you will be granted euthanasia if you ask for it. Even though we know that a huge proportion of the elderly have undiagnosed depression, probably out of loneliness or feeling their life has lost its meaning. A huge proportion of those who have a terminal illness or just a chronic illness likewise have undiagnosed depression. And there's what some psychiatrists have called demoralisation syndrome. It's not the same as clinical depression, but it's a condition where people just feel they're a burden on everyone, even they're a burden on themselves being alive. They feel demoralised. Well, if we really love those people, what are we going to do? We're going to try and address their depression and their demoralisation. That, that's what we've got to do. And, and we find when we do that, they stop wanting to be dead. They stop wanting euthanasia. And that's why I, I'm, I'm such a fan of palliative care and pastoral care, because you're really addressing the real problem here, which is somebody's feeling lonely, isolated, worthless, in terrible pain for a long time, a burden on themselves or on others. Isn't it, is it some part of it coming from our idea of a human person um, and their worth, if we base it purely on their capacity to do things for us or to enjoy life or, or to be of use to us, then it gets dangerous when they find themselves in a situation where they're not able to do those things temporarily or even, um, you know, maybe even permanently. Uh, if we've based their worth on their ability to make us feel good or, you know, do things for us, then, of course, they're going to feel a little bit worthless if if they can't do those things anymore. I, I think it's a very good point, Peter. I, th I think in this debate we meet... Uh, conflicting accounts of, of compassion or mercy, conflicting accounts of human freedom or autonomy, but also conflicting accounts of the human person. If, if we be genuinely believe that every human person has an inalienable dignity, dignity that cannot be taken away even by terrible suffering, even by choice, even by punishment, that they still have all the value and the rights of a human being. If we genuinely believe that, we're in a very different position to someone who says that our value is in terms of, of how useful we are to others or how much satisfaction we're getting at the present from our, our, our life. On that view of human persons, well, a lot of people are pretty worthless. Uh, they would be better off dead. Whereas on the first view of human persons, no matter what's happening to you, no matter how other people think about you or even how you feel about yourself at different times, you still matter. You still matter enormously. Uh, your, your value before God and hopefully before your fellow human beings is unlimited. Uh, we're not going to write you off as better off dead or or no longer worthwhile. In fact, a lot of studies have shown that people who live with people who love them are less likely to to feel worthless, etc. Even people with pets, for goodness sake, <laughs> feel a little bit better about themselves. Yes, a great deal of depression and demoralisation is actually about isolation. It's actually about people feeling unloved unneeded by anybody else. Uh, and a huge part of what uh, we in the Christian community can offer to people in this situation is love and purpose. Uh, and so that no one should die alone or feeling 
that that they are unloved, uh, that no one needs them or wants them around. Could we talk a little bit about some of the benefits of caring for people in in hard situations? So I noticed this is on the other end of the spectrum, but I noticed when we had a young son who was in intensive care for some time and in the danger of death a number of times that it had a galvanising effect on our family and several other families around us told us that their prayer life had had rallied around this, this need, if you like. And I've noticed in all my children that it's changed their attitude to other people, the fact that they've, they've seen, you know, life and death at its, at its crucial end and um, they have responded hum- humanely and humanly to others. Um, is there something to be gained by actively seeking to care for and you know teach people their dignity i think peter there's there's enormous wisdom in the 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 ancient view that we would better suffer than cause suffering in others and that we would better care for people uh, when they are suffering that that will actually change us it will it will change our our character our relationships our whole attitude to life and to ourselves and each other and and i know i was one of those praying for young albert when he was so sick uh, i know the effect i've seen the effect it's had on your children and and how generous they are in in their care for him uh, so I've seen that in your family. I've seen it myself when I was very close to death and was in a great deal of pain. The, the love I got from people that that held me up, the prayer, uh, the, the the care in the in the hospital I was in. These things are enormously good both for the carer, because in in their giving they actually make of themselves a better person. And for the cared, the person who's cared for, because they experience not just the, the physical comfort that might come from, from whatever medical care they're getting, but, but also the sense of, of being loved, of being cared for. And so I think that this, this relationship is hugely important for the people at both ends. And if we stop caring, if we take some shortcut, like deciding that, that we'll just kill some of the suffering people, then not only will they be sold short because they will not be getting the, the real care they deserve from us, but it will make us uh, more callous, uh, less willing to invest ourselves in suffering people, less willing to, to stand by the cross, to carry the cross uh, of a suffering person. You raised an important point there that this is, and I've said several times already that this is killing, this is not merely assisting people to be more comfortable in a certain way like we already do this legally and properly in catholic hospitals it's an active step to take someone's life uh, that we're talking about here absolutely I, I, people should be very clear about this it's been packaged uh with a lot of language that i think has been uh put through the focus groups and the spin doctors but the reality is this bill provides uh that Either a person will be given the wherewithal to kill themselves or someone else will come in and do it for them. We're going to change the laws of homicide. It is homicide at the moment. We will change the laws of homicide. That's what the Greenwich Bill aims to do. And so we should be very honest with ourselves. This is about homicide. It's about killing someone. Some people say that's okay or in some circumstances. Other people are deeply troubled by it. 
but let's not pretend it's something else. And, and I think it's appalling that in the Greenwich Bill, doctors will be required uh, once someone has been killed by them or someone else or by their own hand with the help the doctor gave them, the doctor will be required to falsify the death certificate, to lie about why they died. Uh, they're not allowed to say that they died by assisted suicide, died by, by euthanasia. They have to pretend and write on the death certificate that they died of their whatever the sickness was that they had, their underlying condition. It means we're going to be lying to history, to the family, to uh, our own record keeping. Uh, we're going to be unable ultimately to do the proper studies we need to do because we won't have uh, reliable data uh, because we've lied. And, and we'd only be lying about this and requiring doctors to lie on the death certificates because we, at some level, are deeply uneasy with this because we know it is killing and harming and abandoning someone rather than saving and healing and caring for them, which is what medicine's been all about till now. Well, I mean, there are some doctors, of course, listening who, who might be able to respond to that in some way, but what about the ordinary listeners now? What what can be done? I mean, we, we've I've just mentioned that I've written to MPs and and, you know, got, I think, three responses out of about 20-something letters. But um, what can be done other than this? What do you recommend? Well, I think the biggest thing we need to push for at the moment is to give people real alternatives because some people think uh, euthanasia, assisted suicide, is the, the only option for them if they're suffering. I think we need to show them that things like like really good contemporary palliative care, if it was available uh, to everyone that might benefit from it, the demand, the call for euthanasia would, would, would die away. It would shrink enormously. But the reality is many people, particularly in rural and remote areas, but even in some of our big cities, are never offered palliative care when they are suffering and possibly dying. Uh, their own doctors, their GPs don't know much about it. Uh, the resources are not there for them, even if they uh, were to want it. When euthanasia was legalised in the Northern Territory, as some people remember it was 20 years ago, there were two palliative care places in the whole of the Northern Territory, two beds. So two dying people or very sick people would be helped by palliative care there were no other beds available in that whole territory. Uh, well, no wonder people were crying out for something else if they were not given the option of good care, good pain management, pain relief, good pastoral care, uh, all the kinds of care that a good palliative care team will give them. So a big thing people can do is demand that this be available for everyone that might benefit from it. Push your MPs push in your letters to the editor, your, your talkback radio shows, your, your family and your friends, say to them, look, whatever your views on euthanasia, whatever your views on whether you should or could sometimes kill people or give them the wherewithal to kill themselves, whatever your views on that, surely you'd first want to make sure we're doing everything we could to make their life the best it can be for as long as they've got left. Uh, 
And that means we've got to make sure everyone can get this kind of care. Let's demand this one way or another in, in the public realm and talk about it to our friends, pray about it. Uh, one way or another, let's make sure that before we go down the slippery slope of killing some of our people, we first make sure they've been given every possible alternative, every kind of care uh, that will make their life more comfortable, more meaningful. It, it is a, a different step because um, there are people who take their own lives, regrettably, already uh, in New South Wales and in, in the country. Um, we haven't been able to stop that, but making it legal seems to make it a much more, you know, honest option, if, if you like. People think it's an okay option. In fact, one of the, the dangers is, is that if it is an option, then individuals will feel more pressured uh, to make themselves less a burden and it will, won't be as free a choice. And the, what I'm more concerned about is that the temptation for governments looking at big budgets, you know, it costs a lot less to, to inject someone with a lethal injection than it does to provide palliative care. I, I think there are two things to say about this, Peter. Uh, one is there's there's a terrible mixed message being sent out. If at the one time we are campaigning to stop the very high rates of youth suicide, of suicide amongst farmers, suicide amongst people after relationship breakdowns and so on. We're campaigning to stop that with education programs, helplines, all sorts of efforts. And at the same time, we're saying, actually, we're going to give you the suicide pill uh, if, you, if you fit within this particular box. Uh, that kind of mixed message is surely going to lead to more people availing themselves of the so-called suicide option because society's condoned it. Society's actually paying for it and, and not only legalising it but actually enabling it in its hospitals and aged care facilities and so on, using its doctors and nurses. So a very mixed message, a confusing message, one that's likely to lead to more suicides. That's one big part of this. The other big part, as you've touched on today, is the temptation from the point of view of hospitals, of families, above all of governments, to try and hurry up someone's death because the caring for them is exhausting and expensive is enormous. How often I've known as a, in, in my own care for people as a pastor, how often I've known families who are just exhausted with the caring and, and wish it was over sooner rather than later. And I well understand that. And I well understand what a temptation it would be for them to, to be offering grandma the, the suicide pill, the, the, the form to sign to say she wants an earlier death rather than a later one, because, not because the family are vicious in any way, they're just exhausted. Likewise, the hospitals who, are, who don't have enough beds, who are always trying to juggle uh, many different needs, the pressure on them to clear the beds, to, 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 to get people to choose so-called choose euthanasia will be enormous. And for governments, with their budget time, uh, they know caring for the dying and the chronically ill and the elderly costs a lot. The, the temptation for them to, to push euthanasia instead will be enormous, just the financial temptation. Yeah. One of the things that I remember you saying in a lecture a long time ago is that 
um, when we're faced with a very long and drawn out convalescence of somebody, uh, it's often us not putting them out of their misery, but putting them out of our misery. I think that's exactly right, Peter. I, I, I think that often this is presented in terms of mercy for the sick or dying person, but actually it's because us, the that those who are looking on, are just exhausted. Uh, we've run out of of compassion, uh, what people call compassion fatigue. Uh, we, we've run, we've found it too expensive, personally expensive as well as financially expensive, and so we're just grasping at any straw that will make this finish sooner rather than later. And perhaps some of the measures you talked about earlier that um, that we can actually help with is when we know of someone who's suffering, that we don't only try and step in and dignify the person themselves, but we work to help and provide assistance and relief for those who are caring for them. That's um, a very good point. I, I think good palliative care teams don't just address the needs of the patient in front of them, but also of the, the carers around them, especially their family. When that's really working well, then the family gets good support too. But, but it, it's too often the case, I think, that the families are neglected by the system, uh, that all the focus is on the patient. And of course, that means that they are then themselves not able to be there for the patient. And they are themselves increasingly vulnerable because of their, their emotional exhaustion and physical exhaustion and the rest. Well, that's probably a good place to end this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking, or you hope it did, or arguing with us, let us know. You can hit us up at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, and find the links to other statements and, and updates about this issue on the Archdiocese website. We'll put those links in our show notes for this episode. Remember, this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast, and we think that's a good idea. Tell your friends. That's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life. Mm -hmm.